Welcome to the Impact Church Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us as we seek to establish Christ followers who live in obedience to God's Word and make an impact in their community and the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, Pastor Brad continues in his sermon series called Psalms of Summer as he speaks on Psalm 19 about the perfect Word of God. Are you ready to make an impact for Christ? The time is now. Good morning, Impact Church. How are we doing? Good. Uh, y'all excited to be in the house of the Lord today? Hear his word, man. I'm glad you're here. And let's get going because we're uh, continuing our sermon series uh, that's been entitled Psalms of Summer, where each week we have taken a psalm and expositionally gone through that. So we're doing that today with Psalms 19. So you can go ahead and uh, cheat forward and pull out your copy of God's word and get to that passage if you need to, because we will be going through Psalms 19 today. And a message entitled, The Perfect Word of God. The Perfect Word of God. Because this word is perfect. It's without fault. It's without error. It is God's holy inspired word to us. So we're going to look at that specifically and what that means for all of us today. Because here's the truth and what we always say. We know there's a lot of false doctrine, a lot of false teaching out there, a lot of ways that we can be deceived away from the truth and the perfection of God's word. So I always allude to that. Like we could sit up here each week and try to stomp out the thousands of fires, if you will, of the way that people try to come against God's word or try to deviate from the truth of God's word. That would be exhausting, right? Wouldn't it just be more simple to preach and share and teach the accuracy of God's word so that then when you hear or see something that goes against that, you know, hey, red flag, it's false. So a good way to kind of illustrate that is uh, with a $100 bill, all right? We kind of shared this a a couple months back in an illustration. I figured I'd do it again, and I'll say the same thing I said then. Don't tell my wife and kids I have this because they'll come take it from me, okay? Um, But this is a $100 bill, so it's easier for me or somebody that if you work for a bank to teach somebody what a $100 bill authentically looks like. And there's ways that you can tell that this is real, and then if anything deviates from it, you automatically know what? Is not. So when you take this $100 bill, you can look, and of course, it's got old Benji on it, right? You know he's got to have Benji, all right? But on here, if you rub your finger across his shoulder, there's a little kind of raised mark so you know that it's authentic, but it goes deeper and farther because you can line up the serial numbers with the letters to make sure they were printed at the accurate time. You can look at this blue ribbon here and, and hold it up, and it should flicker and change and see things in it. There's a uh, ribbon over here that says USA. When you hold it up, you can hold it up to light and see it says USA in it just to the left of his uh, shoulder. Then there's color changing ink here. There's a a Liberty Bell that if you twist and kind of go side to side that the bell changes colors inside of it. Then if that wasn't enough, there's a watermark image over here on the site, again, of old Benji himself. All right. So there's multiple ways to tell this is authentic. If any of those things are missing or if something else is added to it, what is it? It's false. It's counterfeit. It's worth nothing. Throw it away. What? That's a $100 bill. It says $100. It's not worth nothing. It's not real. It's not the original. 
Something has been added or something has been taken away. Guys, that is the same with this word. If anything is added or if anything is taken away, it is a false teaching and false gospel. So we're going to look at that today because God has a word for us in this as well as uh, much more on who he is. Because we're going to go through Psalms 19 and what we're going to see is there's a theme inside of this of God wanting to reveal himself and his word, his authentic word of who he is to his people. So I think we should be all ears and have our heart ready to be shaped and molded by his truth today. So let me pray for us before we dive in. Dear Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we come here and we are just in awe of you. We are here to worship you, Lord, not just with our tongues and our voices, Lord, but with our hearts and our lives. Lord, because that is real, authentic worship of making ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. That's our proper act of worship. That's what you told us through Paul in Romans. So Lord, let us be that and do that today through the power of your spirit. We can't do that our own. Lord, we need you. We need your strength, Father, to even have a chance to follow your word. So Lord, I pray that you would come and do what only you can do in our hearts and lives. Lord, speak truth to us today. Give us understanding according to your word. Father, that As David said at the end of this song, Lord, that our heart, our lives, or even our words would be pure and glorifying to you. Lord, come and change us from the inside out and do what only you can do. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So with Psalms 19 out, we're going to see in this passage, this whole chapter, that there's a a unified theme, like we talked about. Some um, kind of skeptics or whatever say, ah, this really should be two different psalms. There's like two different themes here. There's really not. There's two different capacities of how God's going to reveal himself, but there's one theme, and that theme is God's trying to reveal himself and his glory to his people, all right? So we're going to see two ways he does that. One is revealed through creation. The other is revealed through his word, all right? So we have what we call general revelation through creation, and then there's going to be specific revelation done through the word of God. So let's read this passage first, and then let's dive in. So here we go. Psalms 19. The title is The Perfect Revelation of the Lord. Therefore, you get the title of our message. It says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to end to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. This is where it transitions over to the word in verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. 
The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. There's a lot in there. And obviously these first six verses were alluding to God's creation. So in that we get this general revelation. Verses 7 through 14 were specific. I'm talking about his word and how it changes lives, hearts. And so those verses, especially those verses in uh, 7 through 9, are his uh, specific revelation through his word. So let's look at this. So in verses 1 through 6, basically David looks into the heavens and he sees the, the majesty and the glory of God. And I'm not just talking about specifically here the, the, the blue sky and the night sky because he clearly saw that as well. But he's looking at the vastness and, and being inspired because this is back then where they didn't have like all the telescopes and astronomy and stuff. So he knows out there that there's this through the Holy Spirit, through, through the Spirit of God divinely inspired him that there's something bigger. There's something greater out there than just what he sees with his eyes. Think about that. That's God speaking. This is even more proof of, of the divinely inspired word of God because there was no science back then to back up what he's about to say here in just a minute. We'll show you that. But he clearly through it all saw God's glory. He gives praise to his sovereignty, his power to create something so magnificent, so large, so vast that cannot be duplicated. He gives glory to his design, his craftsmanship, this something that's made so perfect and specific and detailed. Think about the detail that's just in the earth that you live, in the solar system, where the earth's not too close to the sun so that it burns up, or that it's not too far away so that it freezes. It's the only planet in our solar system, the perfect distance from the sun to sustain life. Think about that. The proper balance of air nutrients in our, in our atmosphere of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide so that we can breathe and have life. And then the detail that happens where, where we know we take in oxygen and give off carbon dioxide. And the trees use carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. Man, what a perfect design, huh? Do you see where it just goes in the face of God for, for any type of teaching of a Big Bang Theory evolution? Just to, to cast out God when he was so intricate in the details of how his creation would be existed. David saw the glory of his artistry and how beautiful everything is. And if you've ever traveled across our nation, our world much, you know the beauty of the ocean, the beauty of the mountains, of the waterfalls, of all of his creation. And then he knew of the glory of his goodness and his kindness just to create something so that you and I, so that humanity can exist and live in such a beautiful place. So that by itself was speaking to God's glory. And David pointed to that. I want you to look at something here more specific, though. What I was talking about a second ago with 
Man, there was no science back then to back up what he said. I don't know if you caught this part here where it starts talking about our son. All right, S-U-N, all right? In the second half of verse 4, he says, he has, he, In them, he has set a tabernacle for the son, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Coming out of his chamber, that's motion. What are you talking about? And rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Running its race is motion. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Was he just simply talking about there the rising and setting of the sun from the earth? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the sun actually being in motion. Did you catch that? From one end of the circuit to the other. What is the circuit? What is he talking about? The galaxy, the Milky Way. He's saying the sun's in motion. How did David know that? Because of the creator that inspired him to write this. This was not backed up by science, but it is now. Because those of you that are in the know, you know that our sun actually moves in an orbit around the Milky Way. Did you know that? That our whole solar system is in motion with the sun. You can go look it up if you don't believe me. Matter of fact, our galaxy with the sun is moving at around a half a mil- over a half a million miles an hour. Think about that. In the, in the vastness of this galaxy, Milky Way, it would take 230 million years for the sun to orbit the Milky Way. Even at a half, over half a million miles an hour. How did David know that? Sovereign creator God. That's how. Do you see the beautifulness of his scripture where he uses men that don't even know what they're talking about when they write and is divinely inspired through God for truth that's even backed up by science, even if it takes years later to reveal exactly what God is talking about. It's so beautiful to see God's word and his truth. So we know creation reveals the knowledge, the glory, the wisdom of God, all right? So, man, even if you or I were quiet, even if preachers were shut up and people were made to not speak about the glory of God, creation itself speaks about God's glory. Man, even uh, Jesus kind of alluded to that in Luke 19 where he was riding into Jerusalem the, the week before he would be crucified, right? He was going in there on the donkey. The people were praising him. And what did the Pharisees say? Hey, teacher, tell your disciples there to be quiet. And what did Jesus say? He says, if they're quiet, then the rocks will cry out. Well, part of it was saying, man, say it, it, the impossible will happen even if they're not quiet. But I think Jesus, part of it was alluding to the fact that, hey, even creation speaks of the glory of God and prays to his name. So we see the glory of God visible in the heavens. So it's sufficient to point to God's glory, and it's sufficient to condemn. I want you to see this. So in in Romans chapter 1, you can turn with me there. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 18 through 22. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Man, Paul's very clear that even creation points to his glory. And, and those that may say, hey, yeah, I don't even believe in God, or may say, even I know God, but I'm not going to follow under his uh, authority. Man, it's sufficient to condemn. But let's be very clear, creation by itself is not sufficient to save. Because it's only by the name of Jesus and through the finished work on the cross that a man could come to salvation. All right? So we have this testimony of Old Testament and New Testament in alignment, pointing to the creation and the glory of God and testimony of God and his wondrous works and who he is, all right? So there's general revelation there. Some people get confused on this and think, well, oh, well, that means people can be saved um, just through looking at creation. In other words, people that are in a, a foreign country or tribe or something that may never hear about Jesus or anything that if they just know that there's a God up there and they may call him some other God, they may call him their sun God, or they may call him even Buddha or something else that, that because they worship God and they know there's a sovereign being that they will not be held accountable by father God at the end of their life because they didn't accept Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm going to tell you that's a lie. All right, the Bible is very clear that there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, but it's Jesus alone. That's scary because that opens the door up for people to say, well, I never really heard about Jesus. My family raised me worshiping Allah, worshiping Buddha, worshiping Zeus or whoever. So am I saved? According to scripture, no. It's only by Christ and Christ alone. Some people, some teachers, even some very well-known teachers, even Tony Evans subscribed to that theory where they don't have to specifically know and claim Jesus. They can just believe in their God across the seas there, and that's sufficient. That's some scary stuff. There's an astronomer and a, physis a physicist named Robert Jastrow, and he said this, I quote, For the scientist who has believed by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream, talking about scientists who believe there's no God and just trying to, to find ways to justify why science is God and not the Bible, all right? It says, he has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer its highest peak. As he pulls himself over the last and top rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. That's pretty good, isn't it? You know, when you come to the end of science and reason, it always points back to Scripture like we just shown. It's a beautiful, the truth of God's Word. So now, David in this psalm is going to move into verse 7. He's going to move into specific revelation, all right? And that's the revelation of God's Word to us. So we hear right off the bat, and this is where we're going to spend a little bit of time here because I believe it's so important. It's where the, the Lord just kind of hung me up and, and we needed to teach on this a little bit. In verse 7, he starts out in the first part of verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Since that's the title of this whole psalm here, I thought we should spend a little time and kind of define what perfect is. What is perfect? If you say something's perfect, what is that? That means it does not need to be what? Changed. Altered. 
added to, taken away from. There's no error. There's nothing wrong in it. It's pure. That's perfect, all right? So we know that, and we have a good kind of idea, understanding of that. Even if you look at the, the um, you look through at, at the uh, Hebrew word uh, for it, it pretty much means perfect, okay? Perfect is perfect. But then, so there's a, a perfect in terms of its um, inerrancy, but then the perfect, also, if you look at this word, in terms of its completeness. And that's what we want to look at a little bit today, that it is complete, it's done because we live in a world where people try to say that God's word is not sufficiently true and not sufficiently able to teach and be applicable to the things we face in our life today. It's out there. It's even in our churches, sometimes subtly, sometimes very forthright. But it's out there that, eh, I don't know that we need to. Yeah, you do, because if the Bible says that it, it's true. But do you believe that? Or have you and I fallen maybe for a false doctrine or a false leading that, eh, maybe there's parts of this that are true, but there's parts of this that are not. Let me tell you what, this is either all true or it's none of it's true. There's no bits, pieces, and parts that we can take out and apply and bits, parts, and pieces that we can choose to leave out because it doesn't fit our own narrative and our own lifestyle or what we believe. That's not it. You see, because Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Which is he to you? This is his word. All right, and this reveals who God is. So it's perfect. It means it's, it's complete, all right? So with that idea of completeness brings up this idea of the canonization of Scripture. Some of you may know what that is. Some of you may not. But if you look at the canonization of Scripture, it refers to how all the books of the Bible, all right, are brought together to constitute this complete and divinely inspired word of God. In other words, canonization is these are the words, these are the, the books that are divinely inspired, and these alone are we to look to for faith and guidance. Anything other than what's in this Bible, because there's many, many, many other writings, is not to be taken as divinely inspired and held with total accountability. There may be some parts of truth and revelation in some of those writings, just like somebody may write a book, and they may have some truth in that book, and then a few statements may not be true, okay? But if you say, oh, this whole book is true, but there's two chapters that aren't, well, no, the whole book's not true. You may take pieces of it that may be um, relevant, but some that are not. You see what I'm saying? That's not the case with the inerrant, inspired, canonized books of the Bible. Does that make sense? These are all divinely inspired. So we're going to look at that. So we know that this is now a closed canon, all right? So that means that nothing can be added, nothing can be taken away, all right? Even this word perfect alludes to that, that it is complete, all right? And this is what we need to understand. So the canon of Scripture was not determined by man, all right? It was not a bunch of men one day who sat down and formed a committee and like, hey, let's pick the books of the Bible that need to go in here. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? That is not how it worked, Okay. The canon of Scripture was determined by God and not men, all right? So you have to know that, that these books were accepted because they were inspired by God as the people were writing them. Because, in other words, they were included in the canon because God inspired them at the time that it was written, okay? Then later, 
because God chose to use people in all of his work, and he still invites us to be a part of what he's doing, yes, Jewish rabbis, scholars, and and, uh, people through the uh, early church age sat down and through leading of the Holy Spirit, pointed out and, and, and brought in the canon of Scripture that God had already ordained. So in that, we have 66 books in the Old and New Testament. That's the canon, all right? So nothing can be added or taken away from this. So a closed canon implies that any other religious books of any sort are not inspired by God and should be rejected as being divinely inspired. Again, it doesn't mean there may be some truth in something, but they cannot be included in Scripture, all right? And we know there's even um, heretical books that are written in a, in, uh, through other religions in addition to God's Word. One would be the Book of Mormon, okay, that the Mormons follow, uh, supposedly um, divinely inspired through John Smith, okay? Well, this is not part of the canon of Scripture, so guess what? It is not authoritative, all right? And it is wrong. And if you know much about that, they don't believe Jesus is, is God and all that, that stuff. Same with, you have, um, obviously, uh, the, the Quran, all right? And you have all the, 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 the attributes of a false God and false teaching that go through the Quran with the Muslims, all right? You can go through many other script, um, books and heresies, and we'll look at a, a few as we go along. But basically, all these other ones are works of men and they're not the product of God's Holy Spirit, of divine revelation, all right? So this is a closed canon. Closed canon also implies that there's no apostles or prophets today who are receiving new messages from God. Let me make that very clear because there's a whole new apostolic reformation kind of idea where there's apostles and prophets out there who are receiving new revelations and ideas from the Lord. That is heresy. Run, Okay. God has already revealed all his revelation in the closed canon of Scripture. Anything that is given needs to line up with this and this alone, all right? So we have, in our church age, we have gifted teachers and preachers, but they all should come back through God's Word. Any instruction, any uh, counseling, any advice that's given should always line up with God's Word, and you need to be responsible to go back and make sure that this Word aligns with what you're being told by someone. Does that make sense? It's your responsibility to follow truth, 100%. Don't be misled by anything else. This is a closed canon. It's divinely inspired. It's complete. It's perfect already. All right? Sadly, though, there's many people in our church age that um, give way to people who believe they have dreams and visions, and they share it from the pulpit that falsely proclaim that God spoke to me in this way, in this revelation, and it doesn't line up with Scripture. And, and boy, it's just leading many people astray. And it's scary stuff. Again, you go back to this And if it's not on this, it's not a $100 bill. If it's not in this, it's not God's inerrant holy word. Okay? We need to keep that. God's word states that emphatically in many other ways through scripture. If you look at Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, I'll read that to you. God's word's going to caution us not to add anything. All right, you ready? Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6 says, Every word of God is pure. That word means flawless again, all right? He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words. I can't say any more clear than that. Lest he will rebuke you 
and you be found a liar. It's pretty strong words, isn't it? How about Deuteronomy 4.2, when the word of Moses given to his people, again, divinely inspired through Moses to tell his people, he warns them not to take away or add from God's commands. Are you ready? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2 says, you shall not add to the words that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, all right, which I command you. Pretty simple. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. If those weren't enough from you, because you might say, oh, that's Old Testament bread. How about Revelation? All right. Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Oh, no. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. That's God's word, not mine. This is a closed canon, guys. It's it. It's done. It's inerrant. It's perfect. Nothing to be added. Nothing to be taken away. There will be no new revelation outside the revelation that is already given right here. That's it. It's done. All right? He's already revealed the Bible, his word, to his church. Unfortunately, many people try to add to it. They do. Take away from it, we know, but especially try to add to it as well. Many Roman Catholic Bibles have several more books, all right, in their Bible than what's in the Bible that you hold in your hand today. These extra books are referred to as the Apocrypha, all right, or the Deuterocanonical books. The word Apocrypha means hidden, while the Deuterocanonical books means it's the second canon. Oh, that's scary. The second canon. No, there's only one. (laughs) There's one. And we just talked about what that one is. There is no second part to it, all right? But there are these other books that were written um, between the Old and New Testaments, all right? And, and within this Apocrypha, which is around, I believe, seven other books, it has no references from the books of the Bible to it, all right? So there would be one red flag. Even the canonical books, the canon, all right, the closed canon doesn't even refer to anything in these other books, because they're not to be included. They're not divinely inspired. If you look at these other books in the Apocrypha, they will contain errors, all right? And they will teach things that are not doctrinally true with the canon, okay? So therefore, anything that deviates from this is what? It's false, okay? So we've already got that idea. Not only that, but some of those uh, ideas within those books are even not historically true, all right? It's almost fiction. It's a very dangerous territory, and here's what's scary is, is these false books, all right, that are not divinely inspired lead many churches, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, to believe and practice, practice things which are not in agreement with the Bible. And that's where it gets really scary, all right? Some examples would be praying for the dead, petitioning the saints in heaven for their prayers, worshiping angels, Something called almsgiving, which is atoning for sins. Like you got to give money and things for forgiveness of sins. That is not in your word. That is not in the canon. All right. Two of the, the books that are within this apocrypha are first and second Maccabees. 
First and second Maccabees. And you'd be like, hold up, what's Maccabees? Is that like a cross between Maccadoos and Applebee's? No, no, this is Maccabees. I see, now that I got y'all thinking about food, I really got to hurry now, okay? But there's a first and second Maccabees within this Apocrypha that are used in the Greek and Russian Orthodox churches as well as the Roman Catholic Church. The authors of these books are unknown, all right? And it's written from a biased perspective. The first book doesn't even mention God or divine intervention. The second book has somewhat of a theological slant, but it offers several different doctrines like we just talked about that deviate from the truth of Bible, of the Bible. One of those is the idea of purgatory, which we know some of the Roman Catholic churches believe in. Believe in this halfway point between earth and heaven where you get a second chance to claim Christ. All right, that's where that idea comes from. All right, is from books outside of the canon. Then there's other books. There's an apostolic constitution. It's part of a, a, a pseudo uh, pseudopigrapha, all right, which is a false teachings. Anything outside of divine um, inspiration is false teaching when it tries to claim divinity. And it's not. It's not canonical or is it authoritative. It's misleading because even the nature of the author, it tries to say that even the disciples wrote it when they may have started some of it, but then an editor if you will, gets a hold of it, or editors, and changed a lot of what was said. So this apostolic constitution invalidates its own spiritual authority by being false about who wrote it. All right, I'll move on. There's a whole lot there. We could spend two weeks um, or more just talking about that, but I just felt like we needed to teach a little bit of that before we moved on. Another way that there's uh, inerrancy at times, when you look at the perfection of God's word, that people try to deviate from it, get this, and this is where you got to be very careful, is in translations of the Bible. If you have the version app like I do, you can get a gazillion translations of the word of God. How many do we need, right? Come on. There's a million of them, it seems like. And some of them deviate from the authenticity and the accuracy of God's word. you got to be careful. Don't have time to highlight all of it, highlight all of it. But even the NIV leaves out some passages, some verses of scripture. Did you know that? So you got to be very careful, all right? That's why we teach out of New King James because it's closest to the King James. It just puts it, it takes out the um, Shakespearean language, if you will, all right? And still has the completeness of God's word. But there's one very scary one I will highlight out, and this is fairly new, I think. It's called the Passion Translation. Do not read, listen to, or recommend the Passion Translation to anybody, all right? Because it is a reworded and rewritten Bible, all right? And it's apparently done to support a particular strain of theology. It's put together by a guy by the name of Brian Simmons, and he put it together to reflect his new apostolic reformation theology, all right? So it's very scary. And when you look inside of that, just for example, there's a, a passage, I believe it's in Mark, and where the word of God, every, every other translation, whether you go to King James, New King James, NIV, ESV, they all use the word repentance, okay, in part of that passage. Guess what the Passion Translation does? takes out the word repentance. Oh, wouldn't Satan love for that word to be erased from theology of the Bible? Wouldn't he? That's scary stuff. 
That's just one example. So we have to be very careful even in translations, even inside um, Jehovah's Witness. We know that they don't believe Jesus is God. All right, so they'll have a copy of the Bible that's different from yours. They have what they call the New World Translation. That's the Bible they use. So those words are changed so that if you go to John 1 in your Bible where it says, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, it doesn't say that in their Bible. And it just says the Word was a God. You can go look that up. That's scary stuff because they don't believe Jesus is God. So they have to change some of the words in scripture to validate their false teaching and belief. So you have to be very careful what translations you go to, even in God's word. Let's move on. I think we've uh, beat that dead horse a little bit. And then it says, after the word is perfect, it says that what? It converts. Look at that. It's converting the soul. We know that, that conversion is a, a, a change. It's through the spirit and the power of God in us that changes our mind. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That comes through faith in Christ, through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit of God and the finished work on Calvary of the cross. You and I can be transformed by the God. That's it. And it's always led through the teaching and the truth of his word. Even Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by what? The word of God. Okay? So very, very convenient truth that the Bible helps lead us to authentic, true faith in Christ where we can surrender our life to him. And he does the work of changing us. Beautiful, beautiful picture. This word here of converting also has the idea of reviving or of refreshing, and that's bringing new life to the soul. Man, don't you, man there's a bunch of people out there, and you're just, man, you're fighting a, a, a life that's hard, right? Anybody besides me out there have a hard life? I mean, you face challenges every day that you don't have control to overcome. And man, it just weighs down on you and just pulls you down. And the Bible says that, hey, even this word of God, it it refreshes, revives your soul. Why? Because it brings truth. Okay? And it's a beautiful part of scripture and what God does through the truth of his word. The second part of verse 7 there says that the testimony of the Lord is sure, all right, that it's accurate, and it brings wise the simple, makes wise the simple. Pretty clear right there. Those who don't know, who are not in the know, it brings wisdom. It gives you guidance. So many people want to go to fortune tellers and, and, and tarot cards and all kinds of stuff to know their future and to know who they are. And other, no, 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 no. Your identity is in Christ. You're created in the image of God. And anywhere you go outside of that in his word, you're going to be led astray. This gives you wisdom, direction, insight. It's sure. You won't slip. You won't fall. This is the rock. Do you live by that and make decisions by that? Or like last week, do you make decisions based on your feelings? and human understanding, and recommendations of your friends and family? Or do you make decisions based on God's word? Because you should, because it's sure. James chapter 1 verses 5 through 8 says, after it talks about um, being uh, joyful in trials and letting perseverance finish its work, so you and I are spiritually mature and complete, then it says this, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without finding fault. It says, but then when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the man who doubts is like a wave of the sea, tossed and blown by the wind. That man should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, because he is double-minded and unstable in all he does. 
Mm, that's God's word. Wisdom from the Lord, from his word, he makes the simple wise. Verse 8, God's word and the commandments contained are right, the word of God says. All right, the statutes of the Lord are right and it rejoices the heart. Hey, everybody's looking for joy in their heart today. What if you followed God's word? What if you followed God's direction? We talked a little bit about this again last week as well because Psalms 119 is a very wide out view of Psalms 19 with more um, sayings and specificity. So, but it's all pointing the same direction toward the, the truth of God's word and what it does. And so that the, these commands are right and they bring joy to the heart. You're not going to find joy and happiness in the things of this world. You might find some temporary moments of pleasure, but you're going to find an emptiness that still remains. That emptiness will only be filled by God. And it will remain until you put him there in your life. Second part of verse 8. Right there, it says the commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. We've talked about this a little bit already, but pure, because God is pure and holy, his word can only be pure and holy. There cannot be any inerrancy, any inaccuracy, any lies, any uh, deviation from truth. God can, c- cannot communicate in any other way other than truth and pure and rightness and direction of our path, all right? So we feel like, uh, we know that, the idea of impurity um, versus purity. If it's pure, there's no impurity in it. So if uh, anything about God's word seems to be leading people into sin or impurity, if that seems to ever have happened, it only happened because scripture has been twisted. I'm going to say that again. If it ever appears that somehow somebody was living according to God's word and doing what God uh, gives freedom supposedly to say, but they fall into a sinful lifestyle because of supposedly even doing what they thought was right in God's eyes, if that ever happens, it's because Satan has twisted scripture on you or them, okay? What did Satan try to do with Jesus to get him to fall into disobedience to God? Twist scripture, didn't he? If he does that to Jesus, who else is he going to do it to? (laughs) Just is. Man, so we have to be very careful, again, that we know what God's word says. We know what's real and not real. And we follow only what's real. Very important. Verse 9. How am I doing on time? Ooh. Ah, Come on. All right. Verse 9. The word of God is clean. All right. It says, Fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And his judgments are true and righteous altogether. There's nothing else, again, false or unrighteous about his word. Get this, guys. David wrote this, and he only had a fraction of the word of God that we have today. I want you to think about that. We have all of it to see and to look at, and that corroborates itself from Old Testament to New Testament. David didn't have that. And he still knew of the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's word. Beautiful. He didn't even have the ability to see all the prophecies come to be fulfilled that we know are fulfilled today. And he still knew of the inerrancy of God's word. So what excuse would we have? Not only do we have creation to speak of his glory, we have his entire complete word to show who he is. So why wouldn't we believe? 
Why wouldn't we fall in to the Spirit of God and let him guide and direct us? Number verse 10, David starts to, to bring this to a close. It says, man, this word, all this truth, everything we just talked about is more desired than gold. Man, I wish people desired God's word more than they did riches today, but I just don't think that's the case. What if you and I desired this more than anything else? Man, what would that do in radically changing our lives, our church, our families, our community, our schools, our nation, our world? Man, to have that heart of desire for God's word. And not only for, God, for um, desires it more than gold, he says, de- desires it even more than his senses. Look at this. He says, man, I desire it more than honey from the honeycomb. We know honey is sweet and it's pleasant to eat. But David's saying, man, God's word is sweeter. I don't want possessions and things and money. I don't want good feelings and, and, and things just to, to make me have temporary pleasures. I want the word of God. Do you see that heart? Has God given you that heart? Have you surrendered to that and said, Lord, I want what you want in my life? That's beautiful. David here gave two reasons why the word of God was greater than this material wealth or sensual um, sensation pleasures. And the two um, things that he shows right here, what does he say? He says, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them, that's obedience, there is great reward. So he's warned. What's warning? Warning is needed for sins that you and I are susceptible to. Because we're in the flesh. We're always going to be more susceptible to sin in our own bodies, all right? Unless we completely, Galatians 5, live by the Spirit. That way we don't gratify the desires of our flesh. The Word of God is warning. So warning's needed. Warning's needed for dangers that we cannot see. Warning for, is needed for dangers that we don't even appreciate or, or think to be true. And we talked about that a little bit last week with that map of if you're going to go across a, a, a land, an enemy territory, and there's all kinds of landmines and tripwires and pits and all that, wouldn't you value a map that showed you where every single one of those were so you didn't step on one and mess up? That's what God's word does. It's a warning because God doesn't want us to experience the, the, the destruction of sin and deviating from his word. So warnings needed for dangers even far off in the future or near at hand or right in front of us. Warnings are often rejected, though. And that's what gets scary. David valued this warning. Second thing he valued, and we've talked about this a little bit last week, was walking in obedience. We know we can't walk in obedience in our own strength. If you try to do that, that's legalism. You're only going to be able to walk in obedience by surrendering to the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God living the life out through you, all right? And you're still going to trip. We're still going to mess up. But the difference is we don't make excuses for that sin anymore, that we have more of a repentant heart and wanting to live and do according to God's word. This was David's heart because he's even going to allude to the end. Hey, I mess up. I sinned. I need forgiveness, right? So even David's not saying he's perfect, but he values a walk of obedience in God's word. Why? Because it gives reward. Again, last week, not talking about financial reward or physical reward, but the biggest reward is security in Christ and knowing that, hey, I have peace of mind. 
I have a quiet conscience to know that I'm living my life in a right way. And we gave that example. When you get, if something's wrong with your car, your, your tags or whatever are out of date and you get the police officer behind you, you, you're all shaking. Or if you go through the radar and you were speeding, man, you're sweating bullets and your heart rate goes way up and your heart gets in your throat. And you're like, you know, and you just know you did wrong. So you're not at peace. But if you went through that radar, go in the speed limit, you have nothing to worry about. You can wave at the officer, man, give him a big shock and be like, what's up? You see the difference is there's a peace in your conscience in your heart with obedience. And that's what David's speaking to right there. Verse 12 through 13, David understood and knew his sinful nature and his disobedience to God, even on some things that he wasn't aware of. And that's where he asked for forgiveness. And that's what's so beautiful that, that, that even the heart of, of a repentant heart says, hey, Lord, there may even be some things that I don't even know about where I've wronged you and come against you and was a, a bad example for you. Forgive me for that because that's not my heart. That's not my desire. And David put that out there. So we're still accountable for such errors and faults. So even our heart should be, Lord, if there's anything that I'm not aware of, Lord, correct me, forgive me, show me. David's pleading for God's help. That's what he was praying for. And he knew that he was even capable of presumptuous sins. Not just the ones he wasn't aware of, but the ones that he did in a knowing way. That's presumptuous sins. What are things that make sin presumptuous, where we know what we're doing is wrong and we do it anyway? One's when we know better, right? Either through God's word, through our teaching, through our upbringing. James even says, the man that knows what he's supposed to do and doesn't do it, it's what? Sin for him, right? You know what you're supposed to do. You don't do it. You can flip that to reverse. If you know what you're not supposed to do and you do it anyway, it's sin for you, okay? When we know better. When friends have warned us, right? A lot of friends that really love us and care for us will warn us. Hey, that's going on the wrong path. You shouldn't be doing that. God himself has warned us. That's the biggest way through his word, through his canon. We've talked about that a lot. When we have warned others against the same sins and then we fall into them ourselves. Ever done that? I have. When we plan and relish in our sin and we look forward to it, we know we're going to get some temporary pleasure right there. So I don't care what God's word says. I'm going to get that right there. I'm going to do that this weekend. I'm going to, you know, that's a sinful nature and it's presumptuous sin where I know what God says. I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. That's pride. That's arrogance. It's sinful. All right. So even David knew he was susceptible to that if he didn't live by the spirit of God in his word, just like you or me. So we know that all this description of presumptuous sins and, and everything reminds us that sin basically has a progression. We don't have time to elaborate, but I'll read it really quick. As it's a, it starts with just a passing or a fleeting thought or temptation. Then it moves to a chosen thought and a meditation. Then to a wishful fulfillment where I want to do that. Then to planned action and where you seek out the opportunity. Then where you act out that sin and you may get some temporary delight. And then it leads to repeated action for fulfillment because there was an emptiness inside afterwards, which that leads to idolatry where you start to worship the feeling and to worship the sin because it makes you feel good. And it leads to habits, addictions, and destruction and emptiness, which ultimately leads to slavery. That's the progression of sin. And it starts with a temptation. Temptation's not the sin. It's saying yes to the temptation that is the sin. So David's prayer at the close, as I close up, in verse 14, says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So his prayer was a prayer of surrender, of sanctification, 
that, Lord, I want to have clean hands and a pure heart. I want to be a vessel to be used by you for your glory. Is that your heart? Is that your desire? That's mine. And even like David, I know inside of this that I'm going to mess that up sometimes. Lord, help keep me on the right path, please, that I can always be an example for you, that we can be salt and light like we're commanded to be, right? That's scripture. And if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? Just to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But the Bible says that we're a light, that we're to be the light of the world. And you don't put a, 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 a lamp under a bowl, you put it on its stand so it gives light to the old house. Why? So people can see your good deeds and glorify who? You? No, your Father in heaven. Man, you don't do good works to get saved. You do good works because you're saved. And that's to bring glory to Jesus, plain and simple. Is that your heart's desire? Should be if you're really in Christ. So David closed this glorious psalm with humble surrender of his mouth and his heart to a holy God. And that's how we're going to close our service today, with a humble surrender of our heart, our mouth, our lives, our actions to a holy God, only so he can get the glory, so that he can use us to be salt and light in a world that so desperately needs it as we live by his perfect, complete inerrant word. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. And I just want to know if there's anybody here, and you might say, Pastor Brad, I hear you. And I've heard some of this message before. And I've believed and, and I've tried to follow and I've, I've done it so many different ways. And maybe I've even listened to some false doctrine, some false teaching where it kind of deviated me away from that hundred dollar bill, the perfect canon of God's word. And today I want to surrender to the perfect will of God in my life. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to come with a heart like David that's repentant over my sin so that I can be set free through the finished work of Jesus at Calvary. If you want to do that today, I want to offer you right now to accept him, to make him Lord of your life. I'm going to lead you through a prayer that I want you to, to just basically say from your heart to God's heart and just know that, again, the prayer by the self, the words that man by himself, ah, they're just words. They don't save you alone, but it's your heart. Romans 10, 9, and 10. Romans 10, 13 is true. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 13 is true because kept in context because Romans 10, 9, and 10 is true. So it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. If you look at the Greek word for believe right there. With your heart that you believe, it doesn't mean head knowledge. It doesn't mean, yeah, I know, I believe that two plus two is four. I believe that gravity is real. And when I jump off a building, I'm gonna go splat on the sidewalk. That's not the believe it's talking about. It's not talking about head knowledge. Did you know that? The believe there in the Greek is actually the word commit, to entrust. It says, so with my heart, I entrust, I commit to you. That's salvation. That's it. Will you do that today? Will you entrust and commit your life to a holy God who's already done the finished work? Romans 5 8, you don't have to clean your life up first to come to Him. You just come. He's going to do the work of getting you right. Will you just come? Surrender to it today. 
that's you for the first time, or maybe it's you saying, Brad, I've walked away from the Lord, man, for a long time, and I used to be on fire for him, and my light's grown dim, and I've walked away in, in maybe some sin or some selfish acts or whatever, and today I want to come running back to the cross and resurrender, rededicate my life to him today. In other words, you don't need to get saved again if you were authentically saved, but maybe you've deviated from that, and it's time to come running back like the prodigal son today. Would you do that? And just from your heart to God's heart, resurrender your heart to the Lordship of Jesus and say, I commit my life to you. For the first time or to rededicate, just say, dear God, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've messed up and I'm in need of you, my Savior. Thank you for sending your only son, Jesus, God in the flesh to this earth to live a perfect life because he is God and then to lay down his life by his own choice on a cross at Calvary where his body was broken and his blood was shed that I could be forgiven, that I could have forgiveness of my sin. And Lord, thank you for raising him from the grave three days later, proving that he is God in all victory over hell, death, and the grave and over all sin. And Lord, I need that victory right now in my life. So Lord, I claim it and I need you. And my commitment to you is I want to live by your spirit and not for the ways of this world or for my own understanding or for myself that I commit my life to you. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, you meant business with God today for the first time or you rededicated your life back to him, would you boldly and unashamed raise your hand and say, Brad, I prayed that from my heart to God's heart. I meant business with him. Amen. If I don't see you, God does. Amen. Impact Church, let's give Jesus a big round of applause for his word and what he's doing. Whatever you're going through right now, the Lord is near and he's right there. You may have run 200 miles from Jesus in his word, but it's only one step back to him today. He's right there. Man, would you just entrust him, commit your life to him, and let God do the work that he wants to do in your life through the canonized, perfect work of God. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing needs to be taken away. It's an error. It's infallible. It'll change your life. It's changed mine. It'll change everybody else's. So let's go take it and be an impact for Jesus this week. We'll see you next Sunday. Thanks again for joining us today. The Lord is truly doing an amazing work, and we would love for you to be a part of it. Check out the show notes for links to our website and social media pages. Or if you're ever in the Lynchburg or Forest, Virginia area, please come on by and join us in making an impact for Christ.